The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. This is Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hardell. Toronto's News, today's talk, 640 Toronto. Well, my good friends, at the end of the show, I shall say to you, see you in September. Yep, it's over. It's all over, friends. August, that is. Um, I'll take it, you know. I'll take uh, July, I'll take August, and June was not fun. Um, but you know something? It, it, it cannot be. It should not be fun every day. What I'm talking about is the world of investing, uh, hence the little roller coaster ride that investors must endure uh, to receive the big prize uh, at the end of the, well, uh, marathon. And the, the way Jack and I manage money, my good friends, is in a marathon mindset. Off air, I was just speaking with our analyst, who I'm going to introduce right now, Mr. Austin Moeller, uh, aerospace and defense analyst uh, from the offices of Canaccord Genuity in America. Um, indeed, Austin, uh, let, let's stretch our brain a little bit here. Let's bend some light, if I may. Uh, off air, we're just talking about uh, SpaceX, uh, Elon Musk and how he wants to uh, create a global Wi-Fi system quite quietly, I shall say. But I asked you how many satellites he has launched into space, and my jaw hit the floor with your response. So I'm going to ask you the question. I want the same response. How many satellites has Mr. Um, Musk launched into space? So I just checked my data set, and um, for the Starwing constellation, it's currently at 2,923 that have been launched today. You 2,900 satellites. Um, there used to be a great show, friends at home, you'll know the show I'm talking about if you're a boy who grew up in the 70s or early 80s, about a uh, fella who would basically collect space junk. Um, do, you remember, do you remember that the, the sitcom, the TV show, guy was collecting space junk? I don't know, maybe Jack, you may remember. It's actually quite funny. Uh, and <laughs> standing beside some of these satellites that they brought back to Earth, they had a big, big chunk of metal. So, so t- tell me, uh, how is Elon Musk able to launch um, such uh, devices into the sky. How does he go about doing it? And tell me about the efficiencies he has created and the ultimate end game. Why is he doing this? Is it a viable uh, strategy in your opinion? Uh, sure. So as far as how he's getting in the, them up there, it certainly helps that SpaceX is the most prolific launch company of all time. Uh, you know, they've conducted hundreds of launches using the, the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy. So to build out the Starlink broadband constellation, he's been essentially stacking dozens, about 60 or 70 satellites into a payload bearing on top of each Falcon 9 rocket. And then he does uh, multiple launches. So over time, he's just built it up to where they've launched over 2,900 satellites for the constellation so far. Now, the intent of Starlink has been that he wants to provide a, a global broadband service from low Earth orbit. Historically, it's been done from what's called a geostationary orbit or geo. But the problem with that is that the latencies are very high. They're like six or 700 milliseconds, which you would definitely notice if you were streaming Netflix or playing an online game. Uh, but if you move it into low Earth orbit in LEO, they're they're getting their uh, latencies down to around 20 to 40 milliseconds, which is pretty close to what uh, fiber optic cable can provide, which is around 15 milliseconds. So 
really that's his intent is to provide a, a global broadband service. And allegedly later today, he's, uh, has some announcement with T-Mobile around being able to, to provide some uh, cellular service to, to T-Mobile using the Starlink constellation. Uh, so uh, I see he is building it, hoping they will come. Uh, I assume he has not flipped the on switch on yet for the network he is developing. Is that correct? Or is he actually using part of it? Is part of it actually in use as we speak? Uh, the, the Constellation is partially active. The planned fleet uh, in the total footprint is around 4,408 satellites, but it is currently active, and he does have around 500,000 customers right now. So let's, let's move over then to a company that you follow, because, again, this, this technology, is, 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 it truly is magnificent. Um, a company called Rocket Lab USA. Uh, talk to us about the company, uh, and obviously its ties now uh, and impact uh, in the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Sure. So Rocket Lab is the second most prolific commercial launch company behind SpaceX. Uh, they've conducted about 26 launches so far since the company was founded using their Electron rocket, which is more of a, a smaller launch vehicle that can launch a, a satellite of around 300 kilograms into into space. And they've become uh, increasingly important following the invasion of Ukraine because the Pentagon's now interested in something they call tactically responsive launch. And so basically what the DOD is interested in is they're concerned that Russia or China in a conflict could uh, launch some anti-satellite missiles and blow up some of their assets in space, in which case the <laughs> Pentagon would essentially be blinded. Uh, and so they want the capability to take a satellite and put it on a rocket and get it up into orbit in a couple weeks or less, even days, uh, so that they would have the capability to restore capacity if it were lost in an anti-satellite weapon attack or if they need to deploy new capacity over a geography like Ukraine where they don't have a lot of um, intelligence gathering capability in orbit currently. So uh, there's around $100 million that's been added to the budget for fiscal year 23 for tactically responsive launch. And this is uh, something that Rocket Lab has been going after pretty aggressively. Last month, they completed uh, two launches in pretty quick succession for the National Reconnaissance Office, and they they plan to continue demonstrating a, a responsive launch or a responsive space capability going forward. You can rapidly uh, build a satellite, put it on a rocket, and get it up into orbit. Uh, and so that's really been their, their a key goal that they're trying to, to focus on with the government market. You, you know, I, I, what comes to mind right now, uh, and again, we are on a chorus radio network as the show uh, airs, um, the sister FM station, Q107, when I used to listen to that in the 80s. Jack, you remember this. Uh, during their station promos, they would always say, and broadcasting on the Annex D satellite. That was so cool. We're talking early 80s. So I'm just thinking about space junk versus all this new metal that we have launched into orbit. Now, what's your guesstimation? How many satellites are now orbiting Mother Earth 
because uh, you can actually see them. <laughs> you know, you think it's, a, it's the following stuff, but it's not an airplane. It's a satellite. You, you see them up, up north often, which is quite interesting, uh, ominous perhaps, but nonetheless uh, intriguing. Uh, how many do you think are, are out there, Austin? Um, if I remember correctly, from uh, the Harvard Center for Astrophysics has a good database on that. Uh, it's somewhere around 60,000 satellites across oh various orbits all the way from, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's uh, quite a few up there. 60, and again, the, 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 the most recent ones being launched, you mentioned there were 300 kilo in size, uh, your company Rocket Labs. Uh, the size that uh, SpaceX is yeah, what kind of what kind of weight what, what kind of weight do those satellites have? Uh, I mean, it can it can vary. I mean, satellites uh, the most of the satellites that have been launched sort of in the commercial boom over the last several years are what's defined as a small sat, which is less than six hundred kilograms. But historically, hmm. in the past, satellites were much more massive than that. Uh, they would like uh, the government would buy what. It's jokingly called like a Battlestar Galactica satellite. <laughs> can weigh, you know, 5,000, 6,000 kilograms or, or be the size of approximately like a school bus. Um, they've, gotten, they've gotten significantly smaller than that. And over time, just as the capability of some of the, the smaller, what you'd call a bus design, uh, has progressively gotten tinier to where they can be a small sat. Uh, and that certainly helped... Uh, open up the commercialization of space to where it doesn't cost $300 million or $500 million to put a satellite into orbit anymore. Uh, individual satellites can cost single digit millions and even some small CubeSats can cost around like $50,000. So they've gotten a lot cheaper. Um, so, so let's take it then to what other companies uh, have a network of satellites uh, available to them? I, I would obviously think Google would, uh, i.e. Google Maps. Am I correct with that assumption? Uh, they do not operate a, a constellation. Now, Google Maps runs off of the global positioning system, or GPS, and the Europeans have their own version, which is, is uh, GNSS, or, which is essentially the same thing, which the GPS satellites were built and are operated by the U.S. government, uh, but like Google Maps and and all the all the sat nav systems on Earth generally use uh, data being broadcast to them on on locations from the the GPS satellites. So uh, the, every year you'll see in the government budget they order some new GPS satellites. I think right now it's the the GPS three is the latest constellation that's being built and deployed. Uh, so that's really where the, the GPS, GNSS signals are coming from. And, and Russia and China have their own analogs of that. Uh, pretty fascinating stuff, don't you think, Jack? Absolutely, Wolf. It's, it's unbelievable, the, the military and then conventional applications. And uh, you talk about global broadband, um, uh, Austin. Just looking at the global broadband network that, that – um, Elon's putting up in the air. Is that also to support uh, autonomous driving down the road? Is that, is that sort of the end game there? Uh, it certainly could be supportive of mobility services like uh, autonomous driving or or things of that nature. Uh, but really, it's sort of aimed at uh, there's huge portions of the world that are in rural areas or on remote islands where no one is coming to lay cable to your house. So if you want to get <laughs> decent uh, 
decent broadband coverage, uh, your choices historically were like a geosatellite service that was providing 600 milliseconds of latency, or that's really all you had. So if you can now use Starlink and get around 20 to 40 milliseconds of latency, that that really improves your quality of life and being able to use the internet. Hi-Fi Radio, 640 in Toronto. Discussion with a brilliant, brilliant analyst of Canaccord. His name is Mr. Austin Moeller. Uh, he covers aerospace and defense, uh, basically technology, modern warfare, uh, travel, of course, as well. Fascinating, fascinating discussion. Look, we're going to take a quick break, uh, spend some more time with Austin. Jack's got a few military questions lined up, as he, of course, once was a captain in the Canadian Reserves. We're very proud of that. Uh, stay tuned, my good friends. We'll get right back to Hi-Fi Radio 640 Toronto. Let's take a break. Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio on 640 Toronto. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Welcome back, my friends. Sir Elton, to set the stage for the interview here with Austin Moeller, uh, a key analyst, uh, director, of senior aerospace and defense coverage. Uh, companies like Max Air, uh, Rada Electronics, uh, Rocket Lab, we were just talking about, uh, covers Virgin Galactic as well. The old space race continues. And of course, uh, Jack, my partner, uh, once a captain in the Canadian Reserves, uh, old school, boots on the ground kind of a guy, gun in hand. Um, you, you must be fascinated. You, you had some experience, Jack, uh, you know, I'm sure firsthand in the multiple uh, Canadian bases that you uh, trained and worked uh, on. You must have seen some of this pretty funky technology that we're currently talking about with Austin, although you were not in the uh, Air Force, uh, you still would have had witnessed some of it, did you not? Honestly, Wolf, not not the technology that Austin's talking about. Uh, it was, you know, conventional infantry, uh, patrolling, uh, those types of things, ambush tactics. And when you start talking to Austin about the capabilities of some of these weapons, especially the modern weapons in Ukraine right now uh, that they're using, uh, it's actually quite unbelievable. So um, really just looking to get an update uh, on Austin's view and what's going on in Ukraine and sort of the, the modern Western weapons that are coming from NATO that are really supporting uh the Ukrainians, and I think surprising uh, the Russians. So maybe you could speak to that, Austin. Sure. So right now, the the conflict in Ukraine still remains sort of in the uh, the stagnation or attrition stage, uh, where which is where it's sort of been the past few months. Because uh, if you sort of break it down, the problem is that. Uh, Ukraine has limited weapons that they can obtain from the West uh, because the West didn't have huge stockpiles sitting around. Uh, And Russia exhausted a huge amount of their invasion force in the early month or two of the war. So Russia essentially doesn't have enough men. So uh, 
we're, we're sort of at the point where it's sort of grinding slowly along with Russia making very slow in, incremental advances in the Donbass, but they're also trying to defend southern Ukraine in, in Mykolaiv and Kherson, which uh, the Ukrainians have been trying to drive an offensive there to, to throw the Russians off balance. Uh, in terms of weapons that have made a significant difference, uh, the DOD has supplied the HIMARS long-range rocket artillery system to Ukraine, which has been pretty uh, devastating to Russian command posts and ammunition storage. Uh, and it's, it's really given the ability to, for the Ukrainians to strike pretty deep behind the Russian lines. Uh, and then, of course, the proliferation of drones has been uh, incredibly important as well in giving Ukraine an, an edge in the in the fight. Uh, the Russians, of course, have drones of their own, but they uh, they were limited in the amount that they had at the beginning of the conflict. And now uh, Iran has been starting to provide some of their drones to to Russia to try and uh, launch a, a counteroffensive. And speaking of drones, Austin, can you maybe speak of the range that they have versus traditional artillery? Because I think some of the uh, the, the drones that, the, that are being provided, specifically the, the switchblade technology that you've talked about in the past, um, you know, it really allows uh, the Ukrainians to, to fire that technology outside of traditional uh, artillery, which is a significant advantage. And then there's also the wave-off technology that I would hope you maybe could speak to the audience about, because I think it's it's quite interesting and it's certainly shaping the uh, Ukrainian battlefield. Sure. So if we talk about artillery specifically, Russia is what's called what you would call like an, an artillery superpower. I mean, that's really their advantage versus any other adversary. I mean, the U.S. is known for its precision strikes and its overwhelming air power. Uh, but really, no one can throw down artillery quite like the Russian military can. And the range of, like, the, the outside range of even their longest-range artillery is usually somewhere in, like, the 10 to 30-kilometer range. Uh, and a lot of the Ukrainian artillery is sort of in, like, a 10 to 15-kilometer range. So uh, the Ukrainians have often had to essentially go uh, inside the range of Russia's artillery to be able to launch uh, counter-battery fire at them. Now, when we're talking specifically about AeroVironment, ticker AVAV, their switchblade drones uh, have a, a range uh, that they can fly between 40 kilometers and 90 kilometers. So that gets you pretty deep behind the, the Russian lines and gives them the ability to uh, attack Russian artillery uh, without having to essentially get within the kill zone to do it. Well, describe to describe to the audience what switchblade technology is. Sure. So the the switchblade, there's two variants of it. The 300, which is uh, you can think of it as like a small flying pipe bomb. I mean, it's a small drone. It has a, a camera on it, and it's man portable and can be launched out of a mortar tube. Uh, and then there's uh, the Switchblade 600, which is essentially a, uh, a flying maneuverable uh, missile. I mean, it has a javelin warhead in it. It's, uh, it's several feet long, also relatively easy to set up and launch for infantry. And so uh, in, in terms of the design, uh, they're, they're designed to be able to go after a target and pursue it for an extended period of time. Uh, it's 
it's really unique in that it's not fire and forget like a Hellfire missile being launched off of a Reaper drone. It's really, you can go and chase down a target and, and pursue them for an extended period of time. Uh, and then in terms of its wave-off capability, which AeroVironment owns the IP for, uh, it can essentially stop an attack at the last minute if you realize that whoever you're targeting was not what you're looking for or there's civilians nearby and you don't want to risk civilian casualties. Like, for example, the Hellfire missile, which is used extensively by the U.S. military, it's a fire-and-forget weapon. So once you pull the trigger, that thing is going wherever you want it to go, and if you realize that you made a mistake, there's no way to take it back. Uh, with the switchblade, up until the very last second, you can be uh, approaching a target in what's called its dash attack, and as it's dashing at the target, you can go, oh, wait, I made a mistake, or there's some civilians nearby, we need to cancel the attack. And you can issue that command to the switchblade, and then it will essentially wave off, or it will, it will fly off in another direction and essentially loiter and wait to receive more commands. So that allows you to minimize civilian casualties, and also it's still airborne, so you can, you can come back later and try to attack again. And I assume all this is, is tied into the satellite network that we began uh, the show with? Uh, there's certainly the use of SATCOM within the military, uh, what, what's called like sensor to shooter, where you'll have drones providing ISR or, or intelligence surveillance reconnaissance capability that are flying overhead uh, or other aircraft that are providing ISR data. That's all being fed over, over satellite networks like Link 16 uh, back to decision makers that are controlling the drones. And then uh, that, that, can, that information can be relayed and, and, used, and, and used to uh, issue targeting data the, to drones. But as far as the control, the control center for the drone itself, each, each kit of drones usually comes with a, a, um, a control terminal that is operated by a soldier on the ground. That's usually just being done over RF on the ground, although they can get extraneous external data uh, over satellite from other, other people in the network. Another unique feature, uh, I think, of the Switchblade, and maybe Austin could just speak to this as well, is the fact that it's electronically powered as opposed to rocket-powered. Um, how is that a benefit for the, uh, uh, the Switchblade and AeroVironment? Sure. So, I mean, it helps that it's not, it doesn't have a jet engine and it doesn't have a, uh, a, a you know, a rocket engine like a missile. So uh, it, it, it has a, a prop, it's, it has a propeller system and it's electrically powered and that makes it much quieter and it makes it much harder to detect it on radar for an air defense system, uh, which if you're the Russian army, for example, and you're trying to keep hundreds of these little drones out of your, your area of operations uh, and your air defense systems can't pick it up very easily, then you're going to have a very bad day. Um, Austin Moeller, uh, one of our analysts, the uh, senior analyst, as a matter of fact, uh, aerospace and defense, you know, I do have a wish for you, uh, and I hope you accept my wish. And I, I wish you end up uh, being an analyst, you get inside the doors of these businesses. And we had Derek DeLay, one of our consumer analysts, on the show a couple of years ago, and he took a, a client visit in the uh, deep mountains of Austria. 
uh, where Bombardier actually has a manufacturing plant, and he's able to drive through the Austrian mountains in one of those, I think, god-awful-looking three-wheelers that Bombardier has produced, and he had the time of his life. So being that you cover Virgin Galactic, I want to pivot over to that company for a few seconds, Sir Richard Branson's company. Uh, perhaps you get yourself a little space flight uh, ahead of the crowd uh, as a career-building opportunity. Uh, you know, you have to, at, the, at the end of the day, if you're going to write up this company, you might as well test the product, but let's talk about that. Where's Virgin Galactic uh, relative to Elon Musk in, uh, call it, retail space travel? Sure. So, I mean, Virgin Galactic and SpaceX are really doing very different things in terms of space travel. I mean, what Virgin Galactic has tried to do is to commercialize space travel and make it as affordable as possible. And so that generally, the, the way their, their space plane, the, the VSS Unity, works is it flies in a suborbital trajectory. So it's essentially flying in an arc or a parabola uh, that goes straight up and down. So you're going into space in the in the space plane, and you experience weightlessness for some period of time, and then you come right back down and and glide to return to the Earth on a on a conventional runway. Uh, now SpaceX, with their Dragon crew capsule, is uh, it's pretty significantly different. That's able to go into orbit. Uh, to, to orbit the Earth, um, which is significantly more difficult. Uh, it, they're working on being able to, to go to the moon and on to Mars, which, of course, requires more sophisticated life support systems. Uh, and they've, they've both Virgin Galactic and SpaceX have delivered people to suborbital space and, and to uh, um, the International Space Station and, and orbit, respectively, Although Virgin Galactic has not flown any customers yet, they've flown company employees, including Richard Branson. But they're they're working on uh, ramping up, being able to burn through their backlog of around 800 customers starting in the second quarter of 2023. Talk about the ultimate experience. Uh, what is the cost uh, estimated to be, uh, or what are the first 800 people paid to to line up uh, at that airport <laughs> for their flight? Sure. So the first 600 people that signed up paid approximately $250,000 for their ticket. Uh, the new ticket price it has been increased, of course, due to inflation to $450,000, which is not cheap by any means. But if you compare it to an orbital flight on board the Russian Soyuz capsule or on board a SpaceX Dragon capsule, those flights run around anywhere from 50 to $60 million per seat. So there's a pretty significant step wow. up in going to orbit versus just going to space. Yeah, I wonder if uh, Sir Richard Branson is going to make you wear a uh, COVID-19 max. Probably not. Uh, Austin Miller, we're out of time, my good friend. I do want to thank you. Great insight. Uh, truly is. Uh, may uh, peace be found in the Ukraine and may the weaponry that the West is supplying the good people in Ukraine uh, help the cause sooner. Uh, rather than later. Uh, once again, Austin, excellent, excellent overview and, and a very, very dynamic forward-moving space. Can't appreciate your time enough. Uh, we are going to uh, step in and check out uh, our chief strategist, Mr. Martin Roberge. He just came back from Europe. Uh, perhaps he spent some time in Italy. I'll have to cue up uh, a little uh, my favorite Italian music. Please stay tuned. It's going to be great. It's Hi-Fi Radio 640 Toronto. It is a show about money. Don't go anywhere. There's more Hi-Fi Radio in a moment on 640 Toronto. 
You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. To do the marvel like a crazy and hey, mambo, don't want to hey, hey Joe, I gotta say. Well, hey Martin. Martin, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Martin. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Martin, uh, our North American strategist, I was so jealous when I spoke to you two weeks ago. Uh, I pocket dialed you. Um, and I, I said, hey, Martin, I just returned your phone call. Actually, you, you pocket dialed me, and I returned yeah. the call. Yeah. He said, hey, sorry, Wolf, I, I pocket dialed you. I'm just on my way to a Mediterranean cruise, and you're telling me all of your stops. Um, I was, oh, I'm so jealous. I had such a lovely time in Italy. And I, I got to ask you a number of questions um, sp- specifically around, I hope you had a great trip, by the way. And please uh, sp- speak about that trip as much as you want during the interview, because I love talking European travel. But all the rage and the headlines over here in North America uh, are around no energy available in Europe. Uh, inflation with respect to the energy trade has gone parabolic. So much so I saw... Uh, uh, through a newsletter, an invoice from a local merchant showing last year's energy bill for their business versus this year's energy bill for their business in the euro, euro, otherwise known as. And I, th- I think it was up some eightfold uh, year over year. It was ridiculous. So uh, to speak to us, uh, you know, in your travels, what did you learn about global economy and economics uh, and specifically perhaps energy and inflation uh, on your travels? Yeah, it's uh, quite frankly like uh, we we're lucky to uh, to be located in, in Canada or even for U.S. travelers because the one thing that we've noticed is that yeah prices are like, have gone through the roof but uh, over the past uh, six months I would say uh, there has been a a, a marked a strengthening in the Canadian dollar relative to. European currencies and, and also and especially those currencies uh, that have not uh, our countries that have, that have not adopted the euro as their local currency. So so if you go to Prague, uh, you get like um, the the currency there is the Czechoslovakian or Republic Czech. Is it a corona? It's not a corona. I, had, I was in yeah. Prague. I had some of the currency. I mean, the those, those currencies are extremely depressed. Same in Hungary, uh, uh, the Florent there is extremely depressed. Uh, so the good thing about about being here or or, or enjoying the the Canadian or U.S. dollar is that it is offsetting most of the uh, the uh, increase, the stiff increases in in hotel prices or or even like uh, food food and and alcohol. So. So I would say that this there's a silver lining if you're based in in North America, but God, like if you're in Europe, um, it bites you. Uh, it bites well, you, you really know, hard. Martin, I have to say, what caught my attention in Italy was how cheap the food was. I'm not sure if you actually stopped on your travels in Italy, but the food there, my friend, is cheap. There's no way yeah. it went to Canadian prices. Cappuccino 
150 euro, which, by the way, the euro is now on par with the U.S. dollar. I found that very interesting this week. Uh, In fact, it broke par, I think. Um, But cappuccino, 150, beautiful croissants, 2 euro. Uh, Paninis, 4 euro. My God, you you buy a Subway sub for 12 bucks. Yeah, what's better, the Subway sub or the panini? I'll leave that for you to decide. You know which one's better. Uh, is it, so I don't know. It was, did you see that? Kind of, you, you couldn't see in food inflation ranched up that much in Italy. No. I know energy prices certainly have. No, and I would say it's probably more like the 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 the, the, the hotels, for example, or or restaurants that are more like tourist uh, traps. Um, those are probably where uh, prices have gone up. But quite frankly, when I was talking to uh, to people over there. Uh, Tourist like capacity, like it's if you put it this way, tourist traffic is about 60, 65 percent where it was before um, before the pandemic. And don't forget that uh, not too many travelers from Asia, as you know, China is still locked down. Uh, so there were not that many travelers from uh, from Asia. Uh, during uh, during this 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 trip, so so at the end of the day, like you cannot charge that that much more, uh, given the fact that you're 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 not at full capacity, uh, lodging wise or or or, or restaurant restaurant wise. Uh, it was not that crowded at night, uh, I, I, I would say, because there's a, a big portion of of the world uh, under lockdowns still. Yeah, I'll tell you, I was in Rome uh, in, I guess, the end of April. Uh, the city was packed, but it was a, a leading into the May long weekend. I'll tell you, from a food inflation point of view, I hope uh, tourists paid full price, because I saw in Rome that it almost disgusted me. and made me, I was going to take a few pictures. It was a number of McDonald's in Rome and people eating at McDonald's in Rome. I say, hey, Paisano, what are you doing? Come on. You're in Rome. Really? You need to go to McDonald's when you're in Rome? How about do as the Romans? I, I digress, but I, you know, I am a food buff, and my goodness. You know, I, I love coming to your city, Montreal, some of the finest food in Canada. It, it's some of the most inexpensive, uh, average, greasy food restaurants to, to the high-end restaurants. I love your, uh, that city. I love your province for the food. Uh, tell us, Martin, what else did you learn on your travels to Europe that, that are giving you maybe a bit of a different perspective on business and the markets as we now look into the month of September and well, later into fall, uh, when it comes to markets, there's no doubt that the number number one or the number two issue, like after um, energy prices, it's the the droughts. Like the water uh, water levels are way 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 lower than than normal, and this is preventing uh, uh, container uh, ships uh, to move around. Um, especially if, uh, like I'm talking about river water levels, not 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 the sea. But yeah, you know, the, yeah the, 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 I got a call from a client. The Rhine is is the main water, river in Germany, uh, yeah. and that's where industry receives its coal. And the client was very concerned about that. Um, so yeah, there's no question so, that the water levels in, in Europe are, are alarming. That's interesting. The supply chains uh, issues, the issues that that we know from China. Oh, now kind of spilling over into uh, uh, spilling over into Europe because, like uh, again, water waterways, what we say waterways, uh, Mm -hmm. traffic is is becoming more and more limited. So when it comes to moving stuff around, 
Uh, it seems like we're getting a second. Uh, this is an, another shoe that has dropped, which will probably uh, still um, uh, affect uh, supply chains uh, when it comes to getting uh, stuff from Europe uh, over the next. Yeah, but we look, Martin, we're going to take a quick break. Jack gave me a, a story, which I never dug into, but I'll, maybe he let you work with the Jack. Uh, and I know you're going to be a little nervous because it is a political story, but it's, it's important. Uh, when, when the Chancellor of Germany apparently had a meeting with our Prime Minister, uh, you know, discussing Germany's need for energy, and apparently our Prime Minister said, well, we're going to see a business case here next meeting. Uh, quick break. Hi-Fi Radio, Wolfgang Klein, Jack Hartle. Uh, money managers, portfolio managers, uh, delighted to spend some time this evening uh, with our North American strategist, Mr. Martin Reberge. Very, very uh, influential in uh, the success Jack and I have managing our clients' money, also just back from his European vacation. So little music, little travel, little wine, food, and business all mixed in the next segment. Stay tuned. Want to make more money? Stay tuned for more Hi-Fi Radio on 640 Toronto. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. back my friends indeed end of august there's still sort of is one weekend left i guess i'll queue up to see you in september next week for you martin reberge north american analyst strategist with canaccord uh, very very important person in my world as i speak with him frequently about his views uh, sectors strategy uh, you name it when it comes to money he has a very very valid uh, educated opinion um, indeed. Uh, by the way, Martin, I had to take my bruises with one of your ideas. So, you know, out the opening on this one here. See, no one is infallible, and nor you, nor am I. Boy, oh boy. But we got to deal with our mistakes. Yeah, we had to cut the Cineplex. That uh, puppy didn't work out. My reopening theme uh, went south when the yeah. bankruptcy, when the bailout uh, takeover deal went south on us. So, what are you going to do, eh? Go ahead, sir, buddy. Yeah, it's more like uh, the, the, the Cineworld issue uh, that I think is, uh, is, is creating the. Uh, the, the 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 problem here uh, because when you look at um, Cineplex numbers they're just just fine it's more like they the are. the 1.3 billion uh, 1.3 billion of debt uh, not of debt but uh, in in uh, in court uh, not court fees but in in legal fees that is owed to uh, to Cineplex so the company is not going to see like five percent of that money probably so I think this is why um, the stock has uh, has gone down. So unfortunately, uh, um, like there are, there are some company specific you know issues. I want to, I want to jump over here, Mark. You know what I'm looking for ultimately? And again, you know, this show is like you and I is Jack and I doing our job, uh, not broadcasting, but actually looking for good money ideas. Cause my job is to help my clients make money, period. I want to make my clients money. If that's by managing taxes, smart planning, 
great investments, whatever it takes for me to make my clients wealthy, I will do. And I, I, personally, uh, I'd like to create a portfolio where I have what's called zero turnover. I never sell a stock or buy a new stock in a year. Uh, and to do that, you have to have very good businesses that you're very confident in, and ideally companies that aren't overly volatile. Hard to you know, f- f- fill all those boxes. But, you know, two names that really stand out to me, and again, I'm not saying to buy them here, perhaps they're going to probably go lower in the short term, but I think two names that you can hold for decades, and there's not many, I think I, I can emphatically say you can hold for decades, but I think are two railway stocks you can hold for decades. Uh, what's your opinion on that, Martin? And if you agree with me, do you have other stocks that you think investors can hold for decades? Uh sleep well, wake up in those two decades with a lot more money in their pocket based on those investments? Yeah, probably BAM is one. Uh, Brookfield Asset Management. Yeah, because they are in, yeah. involved in uh, in world infrastructure, mostly like uh, world in- infrastructure uh, projects. Like they're there. Uh, they're mm-hmm. very shrewd money managers and, uh, you know, commodity, like uh, – like building just the energy infrastructure that is required to to build rebuild Europe, uh, uh, even like the, the like just all the greenfield uh, uh, infrastructure, um, like the zero car- carbon print uh, footprint uh, theme is not going away anytime soon. So 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 BAM uh, has uh, a lot of expertise uh, in, in those various fields, and uh, I think this is. This is probably a, a company that you want you want to own for for the long term, and then well, we own that one. Yeah. We own that. What other? Do you give, do you have any other ideas in Canada? Uh, well, well, BAM is is in, in is listed here in Canada, but it, for the Canadian economy, like you got to go with Royal Bank. Uh, Royal Bank is probably the best diversified bank among or, or five five big banks in in Canada, and they have a pretty good mix when it comes to housing, um, business lending, personal lending, capital markets operations. Um, I think this this is the go-to bank uh, if you want to own a bank for the long term. This is the one you want to own. So and then obviously, like you you can pick one of the rail companies, especially if if water is now getting an issue that will come around over the next several years because of climate change. Um, Well, like obviously, like truck uh, trucks and and rail companies will will win or gain market share relative. No, yeah, we, so I covered the rails. I said that at the opening. I like the two railway stocks. Yeah. Um, do you have given the obvious ideas in Canada about truly stocks for the long run? And if not, then it's pivot into the United States. Same thing. Stocks that you can hold for two decades to create uh, a euphoric, nirvanic portfolio of no turnover. See, when you don't sell a stock, you pay no tax. And friends, that is a big drag on overall returns. Um, now, you, what does happen when you, if you do are fortunate enough to buy really early and hold for the long term, you end up with a big embedded capital gain. One day the government will get a piece of it, but better later than sooner. So once again, Martin Berberge, our North American strategist, any other Canadian ideas that you can hold for decades? If not, we'll go to the United States. Yeah, the, the, uh, the Magna, Magna is certainly one you want to... Yeah, this other works there. That's interesting. Auto empires. It's a little bit more volatile than the average stock because it's sensitive to the to the auto cycle. 
But uh, one of the things that Magna has is that they, are, they have more parts um, dr uh, 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 being um, uh, going into uh, EVs. Uh, they, are, yeah. they are probably, the, again, like one of the, the primary suppliers of, of, of parts that go into e EVs. And, um, and they're all around the world as well. So from a geographic uh, perspective, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's less risk because you're, you've got units uh, producing all around the world. So less vulnerable to also um, uh, supply chain issues because you have providers or suppliers around the world. So I would say Magna is probably a good stock. Uh, Kushtar as well. Like it's a global um, a retailer, uh, defensive retailer, um, uh, real estate behind the uh, the company's uh, stores. Like is worth a, a fortune, a fortune. Um, Never knew that. Yeah, so and the stock just hit an all-time high as well. Sorry, yeah. we, we got about a minute left here, Mark. I want to stay in the theme here, uh, real quick. Uh, to hold or. Uh, mid-term, short-term. So long-term or short-term, uh, the Canadian pipelines. Long-term or short-term hold? Long-term. Long-term hold. Uh, what, what about the likes of CNQ? World's going away from oil. World doesn't like oil. Do you think you can hold CNQ for 20 years? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. This this thing about, like, no, oil is not going away anytime soon. Thank um, you. Um, especially not over, as we, again, like, as we, we do the just the, the 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 rebuilding of all the infrastructure needed to to turn green. Like uh, we're going to need a lot of oil and gas to do it. No question. Uh, mon ami, welcome back. Uh, I hope you had a bon voyage. <laughs> and uh, I love I love European travel. We should we, we we should do more of it. Each and every one of us, my good friends, uh, travel travel far, travel wide. Uh, you will come back an enriched individual. Is that what money is all about? Uh, and life apparently is about experiences, not stuff. So two reasons to, I guess, get off your tush and keep moving. You got to move it, move it. Uh, and if you don't, you'll lose it. Indeed. Uh, friends, have a great weekend. Jack, excellent job uh, producing this week's show. Again, friends at home, any questions, wolfonbaystreet.com, wolfgangkline.com. Send us a note. Reach out to us. Jack and I will get back to you. Always love speaking with you. We are here for you. Any questions about money, who do you call? Wolfgangkline.com. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hardhill, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any questions about money, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. Join us again next week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.